week here, and I think next week we'll, Bill will be back in the, in the pulpit, and I think he is ready to get here. So talked to him this last week, and uh, I think they're up in Des Moines this week visiting uh, their son and daughter-in-law and, and grandson as well. So uh, let me go ahead and pray and ask God to, to bless this time as we open his word and, and look to him. Heavenly Father, great is your faithfulness to us. Uh, morning by morning, we see your mercies. And, and so, Father, we, we need to be reminded of your faithfulness because we uh, quickly, very easily forget that you are faithful. And we look around us and we see circumstances that don't necessarily match up with the truth of your faithfulness. And so, we come to your word we come to hear what you have to say about you and about our lives. We come together as your people because we need each other. We need the relationships that are formed here in and through Christ and the truth of your word. And we need your spirit to be at work in the midst of us, in each of our lives, in our situations and circumstances that we find ourselves to remind us and to take the truth of your faithfulness and implant it in us again. And so we pray this morning as we come that you would be faithful as you have been and continue to be, to teach us, to instruct us, to transform us. Our great desire is that our lives would be conformed to the image of Christ. That's something that we can't do. That's something that you must do. So would you do that process and move us into that process this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are continuing to look today at Genesis chapter 13. Uh, if you remember last week, maybe you were here, maybe you weren't, I'll give us a little bit of an update of, of where we went last week as we looked at this passage, but uh, we're looking at it through the lens of a test. We recognize that God is at work in Abraham's life here, growing and cultivating faith in him, and he uses circumstances around him just as he uses circumstances around us to grow our faith. And so Genesis 13, if you would turn there. I'll read uh, verses 1 through 18 through the chapter for us. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and I, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked 
great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Like I said, as we look at this passage through the lens of a narrative, we recognize that what God is doing in this situation is that he is cultivating faith, just like he does in ours, our lives, in and through the circumstance that Abraham finds himself here. The situation is a serious situation. It's a serious situation in that all of the livestock that he has, all the blessing that God had brought to him and to Lot, is now being threatened because of lack of pasture land, because of lack of water. We see that it is a threatening situation because they're not going to be able to sustain themselves. The land is not sufficient for them. But it's threatening in more than just that reason. It's threatening to the very uh, unity and peace of their family. We see that there's strife here between the herdsmen. And you can, if you can imagine them dwelling here, there's not enough land, there's not, not enough water or pasture. And so there's a competition that begins to follow to try to take care of the livestock that's there. And so there's strife, there's tension as a result of that in their family. And so Abraham sets in the situation and seeks to find a resolution so that certainly the livestock will live. But more than that, the family, there will be peace and unity that's a part of the family. And the thing that I find interesting about the situation is that it's a severe one. It's a serious one to be sure. But it's also reflective of many of the situations that we find ourselves in, in that it's subtle. The exact outcome isn't exactly certain. What is the outcome? What should be the solution in this? What does it look like to trust God in a situation like this? To be faithful in and through a situation where there's a great threat, both to family as well as to the livestock that they have. Because in our lives, it's not always certain exactly. What's the right response? What do I do here? What's it mean to trust God in the middle of this situation? What's it look like to do that here and there? And it's not always clear for us. And it's helpful to ask the question, how is it that we navigate these kinds of situations in our lives by faith? What's it look like to trust God and not just our circumstances, not just what we can do or what we're able to do, but what's it look like to trust God in and through these kinds of circumstances when it's not just obvious evil against obvious good. It's not clear exactly the path that we're supposed to trod. And as we looked last week, there's a, a contrast that's set up between Lot and between Abraham in this passage. A contrast that helps us to kind of see what faith looks like and what faithlessness looks like. And we see that these are two men. These are not a, it's not a good guy against a villain, but it's two men who see the same situation from two different perspectives. We see that Abraham looks through the lens of faith and trusting that God is sufficient, that the land to which he had been called was a land that would be sufficient, that God would provide for him, that God would take care of him. But Lot, on the other hand, trusts in what he can accomplish, the advantage that he can gain. As he looks at the land, it says he lifted up his eyes and he saw this fertile river valley and desired it for himself. And as Abraham gives him the option, so he takes it. And he doesn't defer to his older elder uncle like he should have done. 
And so we see that, that Lot sought to find, uh, he trusted in his own ability, he trusted in what he could accomplish, as opposed to Abraham, we see that as he trusted God, that God would be sufficient. And he walked by faith in the situation, as foolish as it might seem. And what's interesting about walking by faith, one of the clarifications I wanted to make is after you kind of preach, you walk away and you have conversations, you go, there's some things I want to clarify. One has to do with walking by faith. To walk by faith doesn't mean that we don't see what's in plain view. To walk by faith doesn't mean we don't have eyes to see physically what's in front of us. Indeed, Abraham saw a very fertile river valley there. That would be very nice for the taking. It would be wonderful for his animals. But walking by faith sees, it recognizes what's there. But walking by faith simply means that as we see what's there, that it's informed by a higher perspective. It's informed by the promises of God. It's informed by the character of God and who he is. And so it brings a kind of perspective on what our eyes see as we understand who God is and what he has promised to us. And so walking by faith is simply trusting first and foremost in God's character and his promises as he brings information about what our eyes see that are here. And so we see that the contrast, Abraham depends on God, he trusts in God's sufficiency, and Lot, on the other hand, trusts in his own sufficiency. And the two kind of principles that we drew out of this about how we navigate test narratives in our lives, how do we live by faith, well, we talked about the foundation of living by faith, that the foundation really is rooted in abandoning ourselves completely to God and his promises, recognizing that Abraham had already abandoned himself to God. He had already given himself completely to God as God had called him in chapter 1. And so to relinquish the opportunity here to take advantage of this choice property, this choice pastor land, was just another step in the direction of trusting himself to God. That indeed he, had not, he would not lose anything that he had not already given up. And the call on our lives is to do the same. To relinquish the things that we have, all that we are and all that we have. And faith is built upon that, that God has called us completely to be, to be his. The second part we drew out was that, that faith, decisions oriented by faith, will by nature be counterculture. And they will seem foolish to the world for those around us. The kinds of decisions we make is guided by faith and the higher perspective that God gives us on who he is and his promises will ultimately lead us to make decisions that will not make sense to the world around us. And that's the way it should be because it's oriented completely by a different value system. But the beauty of making decisions in and through that lens of trusting God is that it provides a kind of freedom not to have to live exactly by what the world says to live by, but to live by what's true, live ultimately what God has said is true. And so these decisions we make will seem foolish, but in the end they provide a kind of profound freedom for us. But what I want to look at this morning as we think about faith, as we think about what does it look like to live by faith, there's another aspect of faith that this passage gives to us I think is helpful. And faith enables us to live in a particular kind of season of reality. It, it's in, the aspect is that we have to live in a gap between a promise that's been made and the fulfillment of that promise. We live in a land of waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. Abraham had been, had been given the promise, the promise that he would have offspring, the promise that he would have a land and a place, the promise that a nation would come from him, the promise that there would be blessing that would come to him and through him. But in this particular case, as in every case throughout his life, 
those promises were not completely fulfilled. That he lived in the middle, in the gap between the promise that had been given by God and the fulfillment of the reality of that promise that was there. So he lived in the middle and faith was that apparatus, if you will, that aspect that is necessary to be able to live in between what God says is true, what will happen, whether or not our physical eyes have seen it or they ever will. And so it enables to live in the gap. If you picture that Abraham had a, this picture in his mind as God had said, come and look at the land. And God had promised him a, a land that would sustain him. A land would sustain the blessing that he have of a, of a flock and as his clan would grow. It was a blessing of of an offspring, but it was a picture that was not completely developed yet. It was a picture that, in fact, only certain aspects of it were coming into view, while many pertinent aspects were not yet visible in the picture that God had painted for him in the promise that God had given to him. About a month and a half ago, my wife and I and our whole family embarked on a whole a project in our kitchen. And we're trying to kind of, we're trying, it's the key word, operative word. We're trying to kind of remodel it and, you know, repaint this and put the new surface here and do this and that. Well, we thought this project would take about two weeks and we're a month and a half in. And, and you know how these projects go. They keep expanding and take much longer than you anticipate. But the beginning of the project was this. My wife had pulled a picture out of one of those magazines, right? One of those magazines in which the pictures that you look at them, nobody can live in these houses, right? Nobody can really live in these houses because these rooms are much too neat and tidy. But she pulled a picture out and that's become the vision for us of the future reality of our kitchen. Now as we embarked on that process and began to deconstruct our kitchen in an attempt to reconstruct it in some sort of fashion, the process hasn't been exactly all that fun. And there's been times that as we've looked at the picture and we've looked at our kitchen, we thought, which direction are we really going? Are we really moving this direction or not? Because you'd swear we're going the opposite direction. And it's not a real pleasant reality. But there are times when certain things will come into place and you begin to go, oh yeah, we are moving there. And you see the picture and you go, yeah, we're moving that direction. But it's not complete yet. It's not fulfilled yet. Indeed, I wonder if we ever will fully finish this project. Abraham had a picture in his mind, he had a picture that God had given him, and faith was necessary for him to walk in the middle of the process. For each of us, God has called us to himself, and there's a promise that he's given to us that we are his, and that our lives are in the process of being transformed, reconstructed, if you will, into the image that he has made us to become, and yet in the middle of that process, we wonder, is anything really being accomplished? And there's times we see fulfillment, we see what the picture looks like, and there's other times we look at our lives and we wonder if there's anything in our lives that all oh, that reflects what God intends it to look like. And faith is necessary for each one of us to walk in the middle of the gap, if you will, between the promise that God has for us and the reality of this promise. And faith enables us to do that, to apprehend the promise and to live in reality of that. Now the question I want to ask and then give a short answer to and then kind of unpack the reality of living this gap is, why is there a gap at all? Why is there a gap between promise and fulfillment? At one level, that's, that's a question for God to answer, right? He's the one that determines the gaps. He's the one that determines when he promises and when he completes or fulfills the promise. But there's something that we know from Scripture. There's something deep down. We know why that there is a gap. Why doesn't he completely fulfill complete the promise right here now? Why didn't he give Abraham the land immediately when he promised it to him? 
And we know intuitively, we know from Scripture that there's a couple things involved in that, right? That one has to do with God's glory. That there's a gap because something happens in the gap as we wait and as God reveals what he is doing that brings glory to God, that displays who he is in the middle of that process, that we can only conclude if there wasn't a gap, that his glory would not be seen as greatly or as as prominently. And so we know that it has something to do with his glory, but we also know the gap has something to do with our good. It has something to do with faith being cultivated and grown in us as we wait and as we anticipate fulfillment at different stages of what he will do in our lives. And certainly Abraham was in the same situation. Because something happens in the gap, something is being accomplished that is necessary, not just arbitrary, to both the glory of God and to our good, to faith being cultivated in us. It's not just arbitrary. God says, oh, I think I'll wait a certain period of time. God's timing is perfect. His intentions are exact. And as we wait in the gap, as we wait for whatever the circumstance we wait to change or fulfillment for God to show up, that gap is purposefully timed. And so we know that God is receiving glory and will receive glory at the same time is doing something in our lives. And so for each moment, each situation in which we find ourselves, we find that, that faith is accomplishing God's purposes as we respond, as we entrust ourselves to him. And sometimes in our moments, it's, it seems more like fulfillment. In other situations, it, it feels less like that and more like a reminder that we live in between this world of promise and fulfillment. So how are we to live in this gap? How are we to live in this middle ground as we know what God has promised, as Abraham knows what God has promised, and yet he waits for that? Well, there's, first of all, there's three things I want to point out. First, there's a warning for us. Secondly, there's a training process that, that is a part of it. And thirdly, there's a walk that is necessary that faith takes us on. First of all is the warning that's there. As we think about Abraham in the situation, and there's a promise of that there will be a land, and he sees the land, and he gives Lot the choice of this prime property as he looks over the Jordan River Valley. There's a temptation for him, and there's always a temptation for us to realize the promises of God, or at least our understanding of the promises of God in our time and our way. That the warning for us is that we want to realize, we want to fulfill, we want to bring fulfillment quicker and in ways than in which God intends to do. And so we oftentimes are tempted to step into situations in ways that are not appropriate, ways that are not for us to change or to bring about. But indeed, faith enables us to trust God in times and ways. So the warning for us is that there is a temptation to take advantage of situations and to turn them for our good while it might or might not be what God intends. And Abraham could have done the same thing. You could have seen as he looked out over the river valley that he would, he would think that this must be God's answer. This must be God's solution. This must be the way that he is going to fulfill his promise to me of blessing and then to take care of my livestock and this will be the land. He could have mistaken that for blessing but through the eyes of faith, through understanding what God would do, he saw it more clearly. He saw what was truly right was that he needed to wait, that God had other intention, another land that would be sufficient for him that he would entrust himself to. Proverbs puts the same warning for us in a little bit different way. Proverbs 14, 12. In fact, it's Proverbs, there's a couple different references to this. Proverbs tells us, tells us this, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. That there's something that seems right to the eyes. There's something that appears to be so right, but in the end it leads to death. It does not lead to blessing, it leads to curse. 
But you would think by appearances it is right, but it's exactly the opposite. You would think that this is the way that God is going to fulfill his promise, but indeed it's not. And we find that Abraham in this situation trusts God that he would fulfill his promise, but not in, in the time and the way that Abraham would choose, but in the time and the way that God would select for him. There's a temptation for us to see, to connect what seems right, what appears to be right and good with what God would want me to have. To think that seems right, therefore it must be what God has for me. And there's no other perspective that we need, but faith enables us to see differently. And what's interesting is that difficult circumstances, trials as we walk through them, create a kind of tension for us. And that we long to have that resolved even more quickly. And the temptation is even heightened for us as we desire even more to find the right solution and to find it now. To find it quickly. To find relief. And that's where our own interests can come into play in our own perspective. But Abraham trusts God in the situation. If you go a couple chapters down the road in this narrative, you find though at chapter 16... Abraham does not always trust God in the right way. That indeed as you move to that and you read that, that, that uh, narrative, you find that he steps into the situation as the promise that God had made to him of offspring. There's a conclusion that he and his wife draw that the way or the means and the timing that God's going to use to bring about this offspring was going to come from Sarah's handmaiden, her servant. And so Abraham has a son by her. And they conclude that this is the way it's going to happen because it's impossible for it to happen any other way. And they reason in their own minds through their own perspective what seems right is this is the way we're going to go about doing this. And this is the way we're going to fulfill God's promise to blessing. But indeed it takes them the opposite direction. It doesn't bring them any closer to the blessing that God or the fulfillment of promise. But indeed it takes them in the exact opposite direction. So by taking things into their own hands. As Abraham trusts in his own perspective. We see that it doesn't take them closer. And indeed he's not walking by faith. Not closer to the picture of promise. But further away from it. And so we find there by not walking by faith. And by not trusting God. The outcome is not good. Also, we can see Lot has the same kind of temptation. See, it's not so much because of the promise that God has given to him, but he desires to find a solution for his own predicament. He desires to, to solve his problem. And the warning there is he looks at this. Instead of deferring to his uncle, which he should have done, he takes advantage of it. And he seeks material gain over spiritual purity and he compromises spiritually his standing because all he sees is fertile ground and a river to feed his flocks. The compromise for him as for us when we compromise spiritually is a deadly trade-off because we trade life and faith and blessing for just the opposite in those cases. And then we see the text as it tells us about Lot, we see that he only saw the river valley, that's what his eyes in verse 10, he lifted up his eyes and saw those. We saw that in the end he settled near Sodom, that indeed that's where he would live, that's where he would dwell as he would move into it. The text tells us, is very clear, that the spiritual climate there in verse 13, it says that the men of Sodom were wicked, they were great sinners against the Lord. And so we know that the circumstances, the spiritual climate wasn't just neutral, it was completely antagonistic. And against the things of God. And yet Lot saw one thing. He saw 
what he could have, and he chose for himself that. And one of the authors that I read had this line. It said that Lot entrusted himself to a dangerously flawed sense. That he entrusted himself to a dangerously flawed sense what his eyes told him. Depended on that to be right and indeed was exactly the opposite. What seemed right to him almost cost him his life. In the end, it did cost him the life of his wife. The compromise did not bring blessing. It did not bring life. It brought exactly the opposite. As he sought to trust in his own efforts. Sought to bring about what seemed right before what God would say was right. You see, what might seem right to our eyes, what might seem right to our perspective, our limited, tainted, biased perspective might be spiritually dangerous for us. So the warning is to be careful at what seems right. The warning for us is to be careful to take matters into our own hands as opposed to trusting God. Now the question is, how do we know the difference? How is it that we know when we're trusting God and we're trusting what we see? I don't know the answer to that. I wish I did. All I know is that we're susceptible day in and day out to living by what appears to be right as opposed to what is right. But there's two questions I found helpful in my life and I think might be helpful for us. The first question is, as we enter and we find ourselves in those circumstances and ask the question about faith is, what do we want most? What is our deepest desire in this situation? And oftentimes, and certainly if we want relief, that might be, appear to be the deepest desire. But for the purpose who walks with God, for the person who's walking with God, recognizes that God's glory is the greatest thing that we can pursue. That if our eyes can be raised from just immediate relief from our circumstances or a solution to a problem, we can raise and say, God, what I really want deep down, beyond the surface of things, what I really want and hope for is that your glory would be seen. In this circumstances, as we can get to that point by his grace to see what I really want is what you want to happen. That your glory would be seen, that you would be put on display. Whether my eyes see it or not is not the point. It's what you want to do. So what is it I want most? And the second question is, am I willing to give this up? Am I willing to relinquish this for your glory and for my good? For faith to be cultivated in me? Am I willing to let go of this? Lot was not willing to let go of what he saw. Abraham was. Faith enabled Abraham to let go of that and to trust and to believe and to pursue something much more vital and more valuable from God's perspective. And so those are the questions for us. What do I want most? And am I willing to give this up? And as we navigate those, as we wrestle through them and ask God to work in and through them, we find it gets to the very heart level of where we stand and God will transform us to cause us to want most what he wants most and to be willing and able to give up those things that sometimes are very difficult to let go of. Because the line between what seems right and what is right, between good and evil, is often so subtle it's difficult to tell and apart from God's grace and work to separate between the two. So there's a warning for us. The warning has to do with our temptation to step in and to realize the promises of God in our time and our way. But there's also, there's a, there's a training process. We don't wake up one day and all of a sudden have perfect discernment to be able to distinguish good from evil. To be able to know if I'm being faith-filled or faithless in a situation. But there's a process in our lives that God walks us through. And indeed, if you read through the narrative of Abraham from 12 to 22, you find one of the most interesting characteristics is that there's a test process that God takes him through. 
And he caps the test process in chapter 22 when he calls Abraham after 40 years of walking with God, of trusting him, he calls him to take his only son and to sacrifice him. And we see that through 40 years of testing, of of Abraham learning to live by faith, to find that God is faithful in the circumstances of his life, to do what God had called him to do, that he is willing on a moment's notice to do exactly what God calls him to do. 40 years of walking with God, of trusting him in and out of circumstances. Not perfectly, mind you, but through failure and success, through obedience and disobedience, Abraham's faith is cultivated and it's grown. He doesn't grow it himself. It's not something that he did, nor is it something that we do, but it's something that God does in us through these circumstances as we respond and recognize that faith looks like a training process. Faith does not bring about just an instantaneous burst of of right wisdom or discernment, but it's a lifetime of training for us between to discern good from evil. If you would open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, there's a verse I want to point out to remind us of this process, process that Abraham went through, a process that each one of us went through, or continue to go through. Hebrews chapter 5. Know the context here. Christians being persecuted for their faith. The author, as he writes, to stay, to don't give up, to don't give in, but to stay and to believe. Don't be tempted to give up the thing, that that which is most valuable to you, your salvation, but grow in it. And we have language here that he gives, a challenge, a kind of a, a coach pep talk, if you will, to say, go. There's a process here that you need to engage in. And in verse 12 through 14, if I can read this, I want to emphasize verse 14 for us as we think about this process. Verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So you you haven't grown, you need milk, not solid food, but in verse 14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He said, solid food is for the mature. Who is the mature? The mature are those who, by constant practice, have trained the faculties of their mind and their heart to be able to distinguish good from evil. A mature person is one who can discern what good and evil looks like, the subtleties of it, the the shades of it, to know this is good and that's not good. To be able to make a right judgment. He says the powers of discernment there. It's not a special knowledge that all of a sudden God zaps us with. It's an ongoing process of being able to discern the situations which we find ourselves. To discern our own heart. To know what the right response is as God leads us. You see a habitual pattern here of constant training and practice. To distinguish good from evil. It's something that's, again, it's not a one-time day, one-time thing. It's a daily, an ongoing, moment-by-moment process to engage our mind and our heart. To ask God to give us faith to see the circumstance rightly. And not respond on what just seems right, but what is right. Not just try to take circumstances into our own hands, but to trust him and to use our efforts in concert with his intentions that are there. And so we see that... That as the author writes, he even says we must learn to distinguish good from evil because of the subtlety between the two. It's not always so clear what is right and wrong, what is good and what is best. 
Some of you might have seen the movie. I hope you have. It's one of my favorites. A great story. The Chariots of Fire. Um, There's a a scene in the movie that has always captured me personally. And it's really the climax of the movie if you've seen it. If you don't, it's about some runners in the 1924 Olympics, I believe it's 24. And in the Olympics, Eric Little is a Christian who runs for the glory of God. And as he runs, makes it to the Olympics to represent the United Kingdom. And as he's there, he finds out an unfortunate fact. And that fact is that he, one of his qualifying heats is on a Sunday. And as a believer, a man of strong conviction, the Sunday is the Lord's. He will not run on Sunday. He chooses not to because he can't. To do that is to violate God's law and to do that. Now, the, the climactic scene in the movie, I think, it's more than the running. It's a scene in which the Olympic Committee brings Eric Little into this room. And there's these men, high-powered men from Britain and the Olympic Committee come. And their attempt is to convince him to change his mind. To recognize that, the, indeed, this is a bad decision. And it's a classic scene. If you get a chance to... To watch it, you see the subtleties of how right and wrong could be turned subtly upside down. And indeed, what these men try to do is they try in a very persuasive kind of way to convince him that what he thinks is right and what he thinks is wrong is actually, actually the opposite. And they try to convince him that what's right is really for him to run on Sunday and it would be wrong for him not to run. And it, in the scene, it shows and displays the conviction that this man has, and I assume that it has some relation to the truth, the reality, but at least it represents what it should look like for us to be able to discern is he clearly sees what right is and what wrong is. There's no waffling at all. There's no changing at all as you recognize. No, there's one law, and it's God's law, and I cannot run. To do that is to violate who I am and who he is. And and it's a great scene because it displays for us what it looks like to hold true to what is right and what is wrong. And you see a man that is not just trained physically, but a man who has trained himself spiritually to be able to discern right from wrong. Because the capacity to discern good from evil and by faith choose what is right over what seems right isn't something that just shows up out of nowhere. It's something by faith of the course of a lifetime we learn and is cultivated in us by God. Decision by decision that we make diligent to look to God, to trust him and what he will do, to understand my own motives, the warning and the temptations for me to take advantage of the situation or to seek relief in a way that God would not have me to and to trust him. And so we see that this is a training process that we engage in that God indeed places us in. There's a warning, the temptation to want to realize the promises of God in our way, in our time. There's a training process that God walked Abraham through. He walks us through. And finally, as we want to navigate this gap between the promise of God and the fulfillment that he has, it's interesting if you'll turn back to to Genesis chapter 13. The end of the passage has an interesting kind of turn to it. After Abraham has, has by faith, given Lot the choice, and he chooses, and they separate, and Abraham dwells and settles in the land that God had promised to him. We see that God affirms his faith-filled decision. He affirms it. He acknowledges it by giving, by doing a couple things here. He says, lift up your eyes and, and look at this place where you are. And he has looked north and south and look east and look west. And then he reaffirms the promise to him. He says, this land I will give to you and offspring you will have. 
And so we see that God affirms a promise and acknowledges, yeah, you made the right choice. This is what it looks like to trust me. But the two things he has him do is interesting. One is to look around him. So you can imagine, you can picture him literally standing in a land. He's probably standing up on a hill. And he's looking around and he's seeing the land, the territory that God says, I'm going to give this land to you. The land that you can see with your eyes, the land that you believed would be sufficient as you trusted in me. I'm going to give this to you. But then he says, don't stop there in verse 17. He says, arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. He says, don't just give it to, I'm not just going to, don't just look at it, but I want you now to go walk through the length and the breadth of it, okay? I want you to take a walk and I want you to navigate the borders of the land that I have promised to you. And the question we have to ask is why? What's the point? You can see it, but he steps out and God says, I want you to walk in it. There's a couple things that's important for us. One, it's not his yet. It's not the promise isn't fulfilled, but God says as an act of faith, go walk this land because this is the land. I want you to see it. I want you to experience my promise, not fulfilled yet, but yet real. And the walking was an act of faith for him to experience the land that God would give him. Reminded, remind you, the text already tells us there's lots of other people living here. Okay? So, and it wouldn't even be his. The promise wouldn't be fulfilled for quite some time. But what's interesting about the walking and the navigating of the land is that in that day and age, there's a picture, there's something symbolic going on here. That kings in that day and age, what they would do in their territory or territory that they, have, they had acquired, they would do just that. They would walk around the borders of the new territory. And it was a symbolic gesture representing now authority, right? It was saying, this territory that I'm walking around, this is mine. This is my possession now. And so you see the parallel between what Abraham was called to do to walk around and to claim it, not for himself, but before God, to claim it as his. You might remember another instance in Joshua when the Israelites walked around the land that they, around the, the walls of Jericho, that they did the one time seven days, six days and seventh day, they walked around seven times. And what's going on there, just besides getting some exercise, right? It's the same thing, right? They're claiming this territory now for the authority for the one that they represent as they walked around that. And so Abraham is representing God, is claiming this to be his and it was a walk of faith because the land was not his and it would not be his in his lifetime. But it was a demonstration of faith that God was sufficient that at the point in time that he determined in the way that God determined he would give the land, that he would fulfill his promise. He was able to do that and walking in it represented that. As he lived in the gap between the promise and the fulfillment, walking in it was the representation and the way that he experienced the promise of God and that he would complete what 